0: Bye. In the Cosmic Salon, I have a very special guest this evening that Patrick Newlin was able to bring into the salon, and today I spent a wonderful deep dive into this person's uh, apparent life in the outer world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I just became more thrilled the more I listened. And there are so many layers of overlap that I am never surprised at this point by the nature of how all of this works out here in the lands of interaction, in the Vesica Pisces. And so it is with great honor, and esteem that I'm going to bring in, and I think I'm going to mess up your name, Alan. <laughs> Alan Sicchio?
1: Almost. Cisco. Cisco.
0: Yeah. As in Cisco systems, yes. Yeah, yep. Cisco the kid and all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> I've got a little, a quarter Sicilian in me, and I always want to say, chh. You know, there with the two C's. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yep. It is a Sicilian name, too. So, oh, yeah. Oh, there's uh,
0: more overlap there, huh?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting story of the last name, too. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. For people that may not know who you are, and I highly suggest they seek out. The interviews with you, I went to Rogue Ways and then, of course, my good friend Joe Roop and went yeah. to your channel. And uh, there's just such really great content from you out there to go and and get filled in on some of this stuff. And like me, there's a million yous within one life, and that's what's a beautiful thing here on this journey. But give us a little uh, step into your world, introduce us to you, where you are now and where you've been.
1: Uh, Well, my beginnings, right from the beginning, horrific abuse and violence, abandonment and, and many things along those lines. What that led me to was to seek out, really from starting at age 10, how to empower myself to gain some form of control, into this environment that I was born into and I began a journey into eastern philosophy at about age 10 through the library and magazines and then began martial arts at age 13 and I progressed uh, studying very intensely anything I could almost like a renaissance era era thinking process and studied world religions, philosophy, psychology, sociology, and then that springboarded into going to school to get a degree in both those subjects as well as criminology, then began a career working at various psychological facilities, progressing along study in world traditions, and religions philosophies etc and also getting heavily involved in the paranormal which i had a taste for early in life and the occult um the real meaning of the occult hidden and things needing to be sought out and that ended up with me being ordained as a buddhist monk uh, in 98 and i continued to practice many traditions and studying them and then went and received a master's in psychology with a focus on thanatology, which is the study of death and bereavement. A very um, small number of people have this degree. There's only a couple institutions you can study it at, and mine was in Hood College in Frederick, Maryland, um, and uh, have moved around many times to various places, even Alaska. And uh, which has some interesting stories. And uh, then I find myself uh, where I'm at now, which is basically teaching philosophy and the base material in Buddhism, the Buddha Dharma meditation and counseling people on a spiritual level, as well as a psychological level in my own tradition and to. Put all of this together, this large mixing pot of topics and disciplines. I uh, founded an order to teach these things called the Order of the Red Lotus and have been disseminating the teaching since then in Fairborn, Ohio, where I now reside at this point. That's about the uh, annotated notes of it.
0: That's wonderful. I'm really intrigued by the Order of the Red Lotus. And having listened to you speak earlier, I, I know a little bit about your process into, I guess, coming into that. The idea of praxis through martial arts. And one of the things when I'm looking into these ideas, everything to me is an idea. So I say idea a lot because it's I don't allow really a lot of solidity in to take me down. Uh, I like the effervescence and ideas gives me this, is the inner aspect of martial arts. And I've noticed this shift in the outer world towards the outer aspect the fighting aspect of martial arts with the MMA and all this. And I wanted to get, there's so much I want to speak with you here about, but I wanted to get your idea on how a lot of this deeper inner work has been stripped away from some of the martial arts that we see now that are popular in in pop culture.
1: Well, it's, boy, you've hit upon a very deep and extremely troubling subject. It's ironic, I can reflect upon this from literally just last night with one of my students who I'm working on healing an injury he has to his leg and knee. And as I'm working on him and I'm explaining the meridians, the pressure points, the herbal tinctures that I grind up and make and create over years and periods and herbs and such. He's reflecting upon the fact of why isn't this stuff taught like this? Why is it always fight, 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 fight? You don't hear about using pressure points to heal, using stretching to heal, using bone setting to heal and herbs and tinctures and a whole philosophical tradition. And I reflect upon the quote by a martial arts researcher, Robert Smith, where he says a lot of people in the West want to teach Tai Chi, but they don't want to learn it. And it really comes, <laughs> and it really comes down to a lot of fly by night, drive through McDonald fied mentality towards things. Banging someone over the head with a club or four clubs with your arms and legs is easily digestible by the large extent of the populace but when you tell somebody a a, a tradition as well you can study for 10 years to really get warmed up until you get into the more extensive in-depth alchemic processes of the arts where you're changing not only your body and mind but your spirit as well in unifying those things they kind of get that look in their eye like, wow, that's really a long time. And it's like, well, (laughs) you want the whole package, don't you? And then it's like they just drift on to something else because they're just grifting from thing to thing to thing because they don't want to discipline themselves to learn an extensive process because they want it now. I want to be entitled to it now. It's really a coupling of both things going back to the gladiatorial events of the past of pit fights with these human cockfights that are so popular now. Which the good point about that is it's it's destroying a lot of charlatans in the arts who are getting their butts handed to them yes. because they can't really fight at all. they're just paper tigers with fantasy they're larping basically mm-hmm. and so but it's also created this blood and wine spectacle version of the arts, and people don't want to just do a discipline long term and there's too many teachers who haven't themselves learned the tradition. They just learned a lot of fighting techniques. And so it's, it's kind of a multifaceted, or I should say multiple funhouse mirrors that are reflecting the arts and warping them into something almost unrecognizable. And that's really why you find teachers like myself who the arts are a spiritual tradition and fighting is just a byproduct of it, because really there's many ways to defend yourself, not only physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally. You find people like us are just kind of off in the crooks of the forest somewhere, as opposed to with these giant studios bringing in masses of students, and it just isn't a good combination, unfortunately. So hopefully that answers the question.
0: Yeah, it does. It's been a ponder of mine a very long time. I got into uh, the Shaolin stuff with Nick Mai and uh, was very inspired because that was a female monk, of course, and then moved into Wing Chun. And the question was always why we fight in the internal martial arts. And there's a great book by that name, by the way, of these ideas of that are really deep at the core of everything we're doing how we're directing energy in the end and the the fighting is actually as you said a side note and it's multi-layered and so one of the things that seems so interesting in the times we're in especially when we start looking into time shifts which we're going to get into is how density of matter And how this separation from, say, the psychic realms or the spiritual realms, these other realms from the physical realm that seems to be holding people down in a way, although, as you know, we participate in our own prison. We create our own prison. So the density is something we sign up for. And then ascribe to, and we become trapped in it by our own doing. And so the fact that the outer world seems to be very much dense at this time, denser than at any other time in my personal life that I have started to call the movie idiocracy a documentary you know, to, the, to to this point, Ellen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I find this most intriguing. And it's obvious to me that this, especially in Eastern training, we come to the idea of looking at long stretches of time because time is just, it's so illusionary. It's so transient. And how when... The old masters, and we see this in gardening today, but I've used this example. I'm sure you've heard me say it then. Uh, You know, you plant the ginkgo tree for the people down the line, not for yourself. (laughs) Because it takes so long to grow. And when we start thinking like that in terms of, of longevity, that go out past where you're inhabiting this space. There's something that happens internally that creates that immortality within the self and starts those juices churning. And so with that, I wanted to get your concept, especially you are a monk. You've done all this internal stuff. You've worked deeply with death. Uh, I have always had a very close relationship with death as well. It seems like I've lost, I haven't lost, they transform, they move on. But I've gone through several social circles that are all in spirit. I've got whole circles of, um, you know, my spiritual praxis and they're all here in spirit and now instead of physical. And uh, while we're here on this, get your wisdom On the idea of immortality, of longevity of the spirit soul.
1: You know, it's interesting because when you look at the things that are long-term goals, that's where you truly see this evolution happen within beings to where they really blossom and illuminate in their time as they progress along this extended period of training, internalization, and basically constant You know, flickers on and off of awakening happen over long periods, and then they kind of conglomerate together in bigger awakenings, which conglomerate together in bigger awakenings and so many aha moments we have. And this can get into a whole philosophical discussion itself, but there's really a concerted effort that is very diabolical for, let's say, forces— That wish to control our spiritual destiny to not loosen the chains of this denser material and to be constantly locked in cycle with it, which in the Dharma is just called samsara, the sea of rebirth over and over again. And unless people can lessen the weight of these chains of this, this dense, as the Jains would call it, this black goo, for lack of better words, that attaches itself to the spirit on a molecular level and weighs it down. Unless we go through the burning of the alchemic process to purify the spirit, to see this diamond being beneath. And raise up the subtle, the subtle body, the energetic body, which is formed during martial arts practice and alchemy practices and magic practices and ceremony. You know, you're going to be way down in darkness still. Darkness can be a metaphor, but it can also be something very, very real. And unless we illuminate that light in ourself to then pierce this veil that's been dragged over most of the populace since their birth. We're not going to become aware of that enlightened aspect of ourself that is the most precious gift we're all born with and have the ability to recognize if, in fact, we don't buy into what's being handed to us as the only option. As you're saying, you know, you kind of sign up for something when you accept it into your life, and that goes for even things like possessions many times. If you accept it into your life, it becomes a part of you, and accepting these negative traits and things that are what's called yojanas or yokes, like what an ox would put its neck through. If we don't release those yokes from around our neck, they're going to guide us along. And the question is, who's the one holding the other end of the yoke guiding us? And where are we being brought to? And usually you find it's not a good answer. It's one of nihilism or materialism or overt heathenism or pessimism. There's just a lot of things that can be latched onto us that is not helpful and evolutionary for our spirit.
0: So with the feeding of energies that some may call deity, gods, goddesses, uh, egregores, all this... When they're being well-fed, there is a sense of immortality. You see it in the Chinese elders especially, but we see it in modern day with the Madonna. We see it with the idea of God from the Christians, with the, the big G, and in India with the varied gods and goddesses. And I was contemplating this today as I was listening to you, thinking about when they're not being fed. And, I of course, my mind goes to the hungry ghost realm, right? Mm-hmm. And in that idea, I think about hungry gods, hungry goddesses, and I think about Neil Gaiman's work. And I wondered, I was chewing this idea around, that I don't think they dissipate. They remind me of the Rose of Jericho, How it goes into a remission And dries up and appears dead But the minute you put it in It's an evergreen You put it in water It blooms forward And you see it in a lot of folk magic And also devotional magic it's just in a state of remission. These ideas and thought forms that could be us. So Marilyn Rose a good example. You know, she's been well fed since she died. Granted, it's only sixty years or something. It's not very long in the scheme of things. But what goes on in the latency when something's in remission? And the something I'm thinking of is something that was or is in a state of sentience and yet may be sleeping. So this brings in the sleeping Buddha. Do you know where I'm, can you see where I'm trying to take this?
1: Sure, sure, sure. Well, you know, if you you look at the, the theories behind quantum physics, you know, a particle or wave or wave function, it's, Not anything until it is. And so it's as if reality is pregnant with the possibilities of all manifestations. And then when the right focus of someone, let's say, measures that reality at a certain point, it creates an expression that spiderwebs out because something is focusing on it at that point. And these various deities can be completely forgotten about, and no one even knows about any of them until along comes someone that says, Hey, I'm going to rekindle interest in this deity, and they do a bunch of research. They find a paper trail of the sleeping deity, and they cause it to manifest again and take on a life of its own because energy is given to it. There's a reason why deities, quote-unquote, become more powerful the more followers they have. That's all that thought form and energy going into something, creating a reality, and even make things that are, well, let's say considered fiction, almost become a reality. One One thing would be the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. Cthulhu has taken on a living entity of its own. There's religions around it. There's magic systems around the Lovecraftian mythos. People think the Necronomicon that he called a work of fiction is a completely real book. And people have supposedly written translations of a Necronomicon they have channeled. So even fiction itself can take on a reality that wasn't so-called solid in the beginning. If you look at what Alan Moore did, the famous... Author and artist of The Watchmen and V for Vendetta, those two books have actually changed the geosocial structure of the world. And the Guy Faulkner masks are worn by a large extent of people that represents a form and an idea. And the same can happen with deity. I mean, Moore gave recognition to the deity Glycon which was back in the ancient Greek time just a puppet that someone created to be worshipped as this snake god with a long, long hair. And so there's a double play of on—it's a joke, but it's actually taking on a reality for more as a thought form of a deity he puts energy into and gets something back.
0: It's fascinating, and these are— perfect examples I mean Cthulhu is now alive and well yeah. fed Yep, and it brings me to the idea of how does that differ from us we weren't something and then we were when we passed through the cow of our mother's womb and then yep. we were named and brought forward and family comes around and agrees there's this thing that happened, and here it is, and we've named it, and now we feed it. What's the difference from Cthulhu to to a human baby?
1: Really, um, Cthulhu is more popular. <laughs> I mean, that's, and that's an instance where fiction is more popular than quote-unquote fact. This is really something that's at the heart of the Buddha's dharma is what is it that we are? And his answer many times was a word called an Atman, where Atman was a representation of the self, and the A-N added is kind of a cancellation, a negation. So it was not self, not really no self, but not self, because we cling many times to the pile or the word is called skanda, these piles that's put together, that is us. We have form, and then we have feeling based on the conglomeration of the form, and then we have perception of what is positive, negative, neither positive and negative, and then we have volition, that is based upon how we want to interact with the things we like and the things we feel aversion towards. And after enough period of time, those patterns take on a recognizable trait system that we consider a consciousness. But when you look at things like past lives and people bringing knowledge, you know, like a three-year-old writing a complete orchestral movement, evolutionarily that doesn't even make sense for it to actually happen so there's a premise that is there before the pile is put together that basically ignites and fuels the pile to take on an us but again the question is what was your face before your mother had you born and you saw it you know what was that face You know, the Buddha would say, well, it's an unending stream of a pile of bodies that you were, that if you'd pile the bones up, it would reach to the top of Mount Meru, this um, supposed mountain at the center of the universe, this large mountain that's endlessly tall. Your bones would pile up that high. And so you have to ask, well, if I was all these various things, then really I'm none of them, And then that gets to the heart of the search to really manifest who we are. And even many times we don't even know who we are that comes about in our manifestation. It's a surprise to us.
0: Yes, it is. And this is where... The idea of say I think most people can understand this Argras, is The idea of say someone like Marilyn Monroe Because she's still relevant in culture You still see her in ads And her movies still sell And all this She's still considered beautiful Even through all these different standards of beauty So she has not withered Into that state of Hibernation Like the Rose of Jericho The essence that was that Person That came through the eye that came through that became the Norma Jean that came and turned into the Marilyn Monroe when she passed through the veil here and moves on is perfectly fed here, just like we feed the Chinese feed hell notes to the ancestors and effigies of clothing and uh, stuff for the, you know, different practices within those traditions how does this affect the one, and for the example we're using, the one that was Marilyn Monroe in the bigger picture as you see it?
1: Well, you have the essence which has moved on, but the essence is still in some regards, here as well. It's spread out. It's in many places and many times at the same time, which is, of course, like you said, time is a very slippery thing that exists, but it doesn't exist in the larger picture. It's just a manifestation of measurement at one point in infinity. And so, You have to think of the insanity of measuring infinity, but we do it on a daily basis with got to get to work, have these deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. The essence that is her has moved on, I would think, to another birth, to heaven. There's many places it could go, but yet there's an echo that is still here of them. And maybe they come back in some regards through like idols that are worshipped to manifest here again to interact with the living who worship the effigy of Monroe with every poster that's on somebody's wall or a uh, coffee mug that has her picture on it or people wanting to dress up and look like her and photographs and movies. She is alive, in fact, still to some regard. And that really makes people question, well, how alive am I actually? And that can make people start to think about the fact of if they want to have some type of social immortality, they need to create works that go on living after they do. Most people get that immortality biologically with passing their genes on and passing on their family names or tradition, or some people do it religiously thinking, you know, a philosophy of the spirit surviving just past the body. So really, it comes down to the aspects of reflection on impermanence and death and what it means to people and how they get some form of immortality, as you were asking about. Some people disregard the whole question and embrace pessimism or just outright hedonism to just enjoy the moment and not think about that immortality at all. And some people are so fearful of it, they try physical immortality with freezing their bodies with cryonics. Some say it returns to everything around us. We become stardust again, and we become the universe again, instead of just a, you know, niece or Alan.
0: So the essence of Norma Jean, of Marilyn Monroe, and it could be said through looking at her story just as you look at your own how you're not the same alan you were last year or even yesterday and definitely not 10 years ago and when you were four so i mean i've always said that i've lived a million lives within this life and that idea can expand in any direction outside of this flesh so when we think about the idea of sacrament Holy sacrament of sacrament of buying a poster of someone like Marilyn Monroe. That's a sacrament of an honoring uh, whomever it is. I'm using the Monroe as something tangible as opposed to, say, the Madonna or the Buddha because people can identify on a personal level that this is a person rather than the Madonna possibly, you know, getting into that debate. Was she a person? Was Siddhartha a person and all this? So when she is being well-fed and the spirit, wherever it is, does it have the ability to come and act as a possessing force or does it ignore this great amount of, energy that's being poured forth to it, does this become, and this is all, of course, where you are in the world with this, where you are with your, your, your growth with this. So I'm only looking for your ideas where you are. Uh, Does this become something that can be interactive, you know, in like hoodoo and, uh, and in witchcraft and in these traditions? You know,
1: we, do it many times every time we pick up a book and we learn something from an author. That author affects us across space and time. Like, let's say, the books from the 1800s, or for instance, you know, reading the Buddhist scriptures, which come from over 2,000 years ago, that have been passed down to start with orally for 200 years and then written down finally on script. And the Buddha is alive and well and affecting my life on every every molecular level I could think and change paths starting at age 10. And in our tradition, these beings can be interacted with. You can gain blessings. You can gain magical effects that happen in people's lives. It can even affect the weather, affect wealth, affect health. All of these beings exist, especially the archetypes on a larger scale, like you said, the Madonna or the Savior, the Saint, etc. It moves beyond a personified energy level, but really archetypes as well as personified like Marilyn Monroe 100% can cause manifestations to come into existence even for just somebody in their room alone looking for salvation through whoever they're calling out to in pain or in wanting a blessing. And they can cause that manifestation to take on literal existence. There's a thing called a thought form in the Dharma, uh, which is many times explained as the nirmanakaya or what most people know of as the Tolpa. And things like the Tolpa or the thought form can be very personified. They can also be large social movements that take on a life of their own, like we said with Cthulhu or many other things. For all we know, that's what all of the deities are, are merely combined consciousness together, focusing energy in a direction. It takes on a life of its own, and then it starts interacting with us, and many times believes itself to be real, which is, in effect, what we kind of do with ourselves as well.
0: Exactly.
1: (laughs) We come into existence. We come into existence and we believe our own hype about who we are. And many times it can get us in trouble, just like it gets many deities in trouble. And uh, or it can cause many great things to happen, like you have children and you do a good job raising them or you're a compassionate, altruistic person and you're remembered for those things. But yeah, these these beings can definitely interact through and be in many times at the same time and change and evolve over periods. I mean, if you look at the Dharma, how it's evolved over the millennia, some traditions look more like occult shamanistic practices, but it's still got the core root teachings, but it's completely evolved and changed its face. So even the teachings themselves evolve and become something different, yet still reach across time and space to affect people like a personified being.
0: It brings to mind the idea of devotion. Oh, yes. Could you touch upon that in both? I want to look at devotion in the full spectrum. So devotion is an a conscious intent into the act of being devoted through a praxis. And then the on the other spectrum, devotion and how it can play out through obsession, say. The darker side of it. The darker side of devotion for you can't let go of grandma. And so you become devoted to your pain of, of losing grandma. And uh, how this is a full spectrum of energetic exchange with these beings. So it, we can talk about it through deities or icons or any which way.
1: Sure. Well, you know, it's these beings being an energy form themselves. Take on what is put into them. So you have positive beings, and then you most definitely have negative beings that take on very diabolical lives of themselves. And people can devote themselves to the characteristics that these beings represent. What is the thought form? How does it vibrate? And I want to vibrate in sync with it. So how do I vibrate with it? Well, I do symbolic gestures. I use language. I use ritual. I use icons that represent the qualities I want to get for myself or use, like in a darker aspect, against my enemies or against peoples or situations, etc., Um, cursing, binding, magnetizing, repulsing, or outright just brutally harming people with very diabolical curses, or blessing people to heal them. I mean, you look at many of these religious icons, people just go and visit them, and they're cured of all forms of sickness. People have seen people raised from the dead by icons coming in proximity to them. And then also you see icons, which like I've experienced dealing with hospice, you see icons bring complete and utter comfort to people who are facing the end of this life. And this icon takes on a meaning of salvation for these people and gives them great comfort at a time of death. And they can approach it with calm placid, almost acceptance that they're going to be with these thought forms and transcend this fleshly vessel to something that's larger and has a greater existence in the cosmological sense.
0: Let's look at the indwelling spirit and how how that can play into all this. So, we're spiraling around all this. Some of this may seem to people that do not encounter these uh, meditations on the regular, like we're circling, we're actually spiraling, as you know. We're digging deeper, we're fractaling out. And so the idea, the thought form of indwelling And how that finds a place in the experience of the outer world. And so we haven't really, we're working our way inward right now. But how does the indwelling spirit function from the way you experience it, have seen it, and work with it?
1: Coming from a, uh, again, a Dharmic uh, philosophical treatise when they look at the spirit or what's called the chitta which means like the essence of thought it is a luminous quality that is boundless with the ability to manifest all things into existence and it takes on this physical form to play out its karma whether good or bad And we have agency to choose how to do that. And when the body is linked with this essence, and there's many terms for it, Atman, soul, Isfavara, there's many things that can be used to coin the term. There's a connection energetically with psycho-spiritual energy. And the body has these ley lines in them that is kind of like a circuit board for the spirit to interact with the fleshly vessel. And that's where these practices of devotion can harness and focus power into the spirit, the essence, the inner being, the singularity, if you will, warping reality to its own bending of space and time to create a pocket of existence and a history that now takes on a life of its own. And this spirit can travel to any form that it wishes, its non specific locale. It can go anywhere it wishes to. But when it's not able to transcend the physical form to a higher spiritual, illuminated existence, place, and locality, It then has to work through this fleshly vessel to play out the drama that is going to be its life many times with other sparks that come along with it, and they're interplaying over many generations. And it's the process of transforming the physical more into the spiritual so that we can manifest the enlightened qualities that the spirit is able to Create and has the essence of really at its core.
0: You spoke of something very provocative that I have firsthand witness of too. You're in the salon and we're here together. And so the lycanthropic experience you witnessed in Alaska.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so with these ideas that we've been allowing to be immobile around us, a constellation around these uh, inner thoughts and this inner praxis in which we've been looking at here. How does this phenomena play out for you when you try to throw your mind around the idea of shapeshifting in that way, because it is very real, it's very dense and tangible. And at the same time during the chrysalis, the transformation of it, it becomes something else, and there's more going on, as you know.
1: Well, that's really for me, it's it's a it's 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 the same as seeing a caterpillar or seeing a frog, or seeing a condor, or a ram that lives in the mountain. It's just one, a a different type of vessel that the spirit enters into the vessel and then has that vessel's capability of experience, and they learn and grow from that, and they're Diamond nature takes on another facet of its existence, and they learn what is able to be gleaned from that type of existence for however long it is. And then when they leave there, if the spirit is attached to that form too much, then it might take on that form yet again to continue the cycle over and over, which is many times why people are born with what would be coined feminine or male characteristics aggressive or passive characteristics personalities that are already formed and many times bring people bring aspects of themselves knowledge that they bring into this world and give to the rest of us that seems almost alien or inhuman And that might be the reason for it, that it's being brought from a life that could be galaxies away, but they find themselves on this rock in this form this time where maybe um, something else finds itself in this life as a, let's say, something that lives in the woods that can camouflage itself and hunts humans as well as animals. That's what its form is this time, and it plays its karma out in that form and gains more karma po- karma positive or negative to, for the next rebirth that happens.
0: So when something transforms before our eyes, a person into a wolf, a wolf into a person, for example, this can go across the board, this can be And we're going to go there. We're going to go there with the idea of that which lays dormant and gets the blood in almost in a vampiric way, which we've been talking about, but we'll get there. The ability for the genetic makeup, for the physical DNA to shift in such a way that we see a morphing of physicality or the appearance of the idea of in the dense world outside from behind the blackness of our space, behind the eyes, how we visually see it. Lycanthropy is a good idea, a good example since you've experienced it and I too validate it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it really, it, it's, it's shocking to many people many times because it's so fast. It's seeing change on a drastically excelled level and, of course, back and forth with forms. And many times that jars a person's psyche to the point of questioning everything around them. But if you think about it, we're really doing a form of transfiguration like that every day that we're alive. We're going back and forth between who we are now and who we were in the past. And we live literally in both places at the same time. Many times to our benefit, many, many times to our detriment. So our form of transformation can be a detriment to us sometimes if we don't know how to live that new form that we are every time we take our newest rebirth, psycho-spiritually or physically with our body, like losing an arm or leg, or getting disfigured, or losing one's hair, or Growing a lot of hair in a beard or lifting weights and becoming a very large person or, you know, just a large variety of things. So I think everybody actually does it on a regular basis, but it just seems like it takes so long to do that they don't think of it as a constant transformation. But But it really is. We're all doing it.
0: This is part of the trap of time. The way it's been fed to the masses out here, the way time, the idea of time has created a certain level of density where things appear to be very slow moving. And so things that can change on a molecular level very swiftly, I'm thinking of cephalopods, right? Oh, yeah. They're masters at this, and very swift. And there's so much that, say, the scientific field is still learning. They're surprised by them constantly. And uh, just to ground that into an idea where people understand it in this realm, because there's so much more outside of that. Uh, The spoon is there, and yet it's not, right? If we strip ourselves of this... Constraint of this construct that time is holding us from changing, or time only allows us to change at a very slow rate, say, where it's so slow that glass appears to be solid, right? But really, yeah. it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you see how that can create the foundation for? what appears to be very spectacular and fantastic realities. And when one's mind becomes exposed to something like seeing some sort of transfiguration, then the gateways open. And this is where I'm wondering and pondering on those that have been outcasts, the heretics for having exposure to these things and trying to convey to the world, Plato's cave again, that there's more going on and yet no one can see it and bring in the birth of the artist, the visionary that can create something no one else can see. Lovecraft creates Cthulhu, right? And now Cthulhu is a well-fed deity that can form and take revenge, can bring offerings. And so where a wolf can transfigure back into a human and go out and disco and feed and enjoy the spoils of an apparent outer world. And so right there is where I want to land this thought. What do you think is holding this collective reality together in the way that it is because it's such a confining space when I look out into it, the way everything is the wheel of samsara. And I think there's so much more than that. I think that that is a construct in and of itself.
1: Well, it's, there's, there's um, one um, teacher one time said that, the reason that samsara exists is that there's deluded beings. Samsara doesn't exist in itself. It's created by beings in themselves, and then it takes on a combined consciousness of form. Really, a lot of people are so constrained by time because they think death is the end. <laughs> and that's where the trap lies because then things like I got to earn enough money, I've got to pass on something to my kids. Oh my gosh, I've got to make sure my kids pass on to the grandkids. I've got to make sure I've got this paperwork in on deadline. I get my degree by a certain time. I get my 2.5 kids, my house, my car, two cars. Oh my gosh, I got to get my my retirement, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> and then it's like, well, you know, because I like I tell people, there's no luggage racks on hearses.
0: I love that. So
1: <laughs> you know what what are you saving up for? And that's where you get into this very finely tuned machine that doesn't want us to view the infinite. They want us only to view the finite. Because that's their realm of controlling or what was called Mara or Maya or illusion or delusion that wants us confined just to the world like it's called in the Gnostics, the Archons. The more gross, solid world that seems confining, but there's just so much more available. You know, when you study tantric practices where you perform what's called a sadhana, mm-hmm. which is a visualization and psychological exercise where you're actually geoforming the world around you to be viewed in a completely different, more quote unquote enlightened way. And things take on a much greater form. And the things that are looked at as degraded things, for instance, like, spit urine pus feces flesh spit um oil of the joints you know many of these things that are considered uh, let's say negative or gross are then transferred transformed into amrita or the enlightened immortal ambrosia mm. and, and so You then change your outlook, and that process creates a change in your system and your spirit to where you can view the world as a better, loving, more wide-open, cosmologically intertwined place, not only in this realm, but all the other realms of existence that have their own rules and laws that they go by.
0: In your work with those in hospice, what have you witness through, because at hospice you encounter all these different faiths, all these different systems from complete hardcore atheists that just you know, it's the nothing afterwards, throw my bones in the bag you know, the box with my stuff Yeah. Uh, with all this groundwork we've set here, what at that stage when they've checked in, and I don't know if you were in a facility or if you did like the the houses. Uh it does facility. Yeah. And so but you're there and you're riding with them during this phase, this transformation. What has been an overarching theme for you in that process of people? letting go of the solidity of the world and their attachments. And of course, the biggest attachment is the one to body.
1: What you see is relinquishment brings peace. And I'm talking all relinquishments to anger, to bitterness, to being tied to this world. It doesn't mean aloofness or disregarding the love of those around you but the fact of realizing you have to you know you're going to die on your own by yourself you're going to go through the process of when you leave this vessel wherever the next stage is it's a solitary journey and so if you understand that and you make peace with it then peace comes over the whole being. But those that are filled with trepidation because they fear reprisal of punishment, they have guilt from what they have done, they start to think about, well, maybe I should have practiced some type of spiritual tradition. I think something's going to happen. Or they're visited by family who are welcoming them over to the other side and they can see and talk with them. If they relinquish and they let go, that's when you see the most peace in a person.
0: Let's look a little bit at the ones that struggled. What have you seen in those people that really cannot let go?
1: Well, their body's deteriorating and their mind many times deteriorates. And you see expressions on the faces of anger, contortions of bitterness, contortions of pessimistic about all of the life that's been led or fear on the face because of guilt, of a feeling of oncoming punishment. So the normal expressions, you see people with the most traumatic of experiences in their life are witnessing the most traumatic experience of their life, where it is not a blessing. You see them being tortured is what they're being, what is happening. And that's coming from their own consciousness, which is really where karma comes from, which is where the reality after we li- after we leave this vessel is formed from our focus. We bring into effect the landscape we're going to be a part of after we die. And if it's fear, if it's feeling of abandonment, if it's bitterness, well, you can imagine what that landscape's going to look like. And really, they start to have a preview of it as they're going through the dying process. And some people struggle right up to the end, and they die with that grimace on their face.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it. I wonder also, there are a couple things I want, and then we'll we'll transition ourselves into the next uh, part of this enjoyable, very enjoyable interaction. What... Have you observed as far as entity attachments during death? Have you observed any of those?
1: Oh, you mean something entering the picture and attaching to the being?
0: Something that may have been in the body with the person.
1: Oh, 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 oh. Well, um... (laughs) yeah there's you can tell sometimes people are carrying around more than they should be, and there's varying you know it's on a spectrum, but you have to be very wary of is it something that's in and of itself attached to the being or is it more a thought form that person has created in their own consciousness because a consciousness can be split in many places at the same time. And so sometimes you do see that something takes them after they leave this vessel and take them to somewhere they probably don't want to go or goes with them in generations. Um, And many times with deep meditation or prayer or going through past life regressions, people find that things have attached generationally to someone and has been along with them for multiple lifetimes.
0: Have you, with your human eyes, seen anything spectacular during those last bits that would fall under, and this is kind of surface level because, you know, the waters we swim in, this is all... When we use the word paranormal, it's very surface level, really, until you get to these deeper layers. Uh, Have you seen those kinds of physical specters, apparitions, accompanying or around the dying?
1: Not only have I seen these darker entities, which really, to me, what I've repeatedly seen is it's like, somebody's shadow. That's kind of what I've noticed. Or it's kind of like a picture. When you're looking at the person's soul, spirit, you're seeing something like a double image, like with the old TVs back in the 60s and 70s that would have multiple image overlaid onto one picture you're watching. And it kind of looks like that. But you also see beings of light in the room with these people that are guiding them over as well.
0: Give us a little, and we'll wrap on this, uh, some imagery around the ones that do feel more like, I guess, beings of light. The ones that seem more effervescent. So we have an idea of the darker, more archontic ones, or the more shadowy, shadow stuff that could be one's personal shadow that's been fed and all that, all the stuff we could get into. Let's look at the shining ones.
1: Well, really what I had seen was sometimes it's just a light source. Other times it is an overwhelming emotional and energetic feeling in the room with the person in their last moments And you kind of almost in a genetic way know exactly what's there, but you can't see it with your eyes, but you can sense it and you can almost get a feeling of just beings of light, but also it depends on the person's tradition. So that plays a key role as to what visits them as well. Um, So some people, let's say, have an angelic tradition, that's kind of the energy that you pick up on, where in the Buddhist tradition, there are many beings called bodhisattvas and other beings that can be guiding helpful beings as well as ancestors, and they have their own energy as well. And again, it's on a different spectrum of depending upon how strong it is, you can kind of tell somewhat what the being is, how powerful the being is in affecting the process of dying for the the person with you. And, you know, I'm not saying it's something that's constant. I'm saying, you know, every so often you can catch a glimpse of this and it's usually something very unique, but over enough time with enough people dying and being in the presence, it becomes like, oh, okay, this is going to happen again. And you're kind of almost prepared for, you know, wanting to see how it's going to manifest this time.
0: I've personally found this very calming myself, that there is some sort of strange, depending, and, and the cultural differences are very interesting and there are unique signatures, as you were just saying, But I have noticed a continuity with the presence of death. Even if it's something someone's going through that they're not happy about for whatever reasons. And then those just breathe right into it. Just are one with it and, and pass in such beautiful ways. There is a palpable presence Mm -hmm. That I have come into it's and it's also, you know, on a physical level, like where you can encounter a scent in the world and you know something there's a carcass, you know, the smell of death, right? You can you can be walking in the wood and there's you know something has died because you smell that well, that energetic field in the presence of death is also that same way where you come into it and you know its presence. It's to me very familiar and feels like a friend. And so yeah. you get that.
1: the one Zen master said, "You should prepare every day like it's your last, because what else are you practicing for?
0: Yes, <laughs> when there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff in diff- different traditions across the board where one does meditate on their death, and then certain practices where you you actually eat your death gets into the idea of the Ouroboros and and some of these other. Processes and devotions towards the idea that Agori fascinate me endlessly. And so, with this, we're going to transition out of this first half, which has just been incredible. I actually am so surprised how fast this went. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, wow. Yeah, it sure did. Wow. Amazes me, Alan. You're just, you're a well. And so, to end this section on a proper note how may people find you in the world
1: sure there's um i've got multiple avenues that i've built up over a period of time you can look up uh red lotus temple on um facebook and that's where you can see many of these teachings being disseminated from the temples um putting off point where I put these things on the internet to read and to study and to see videos. Um, You can also go to, uh, my YouTube channel, if you just put my name in, A-L-A-N-C-I-C-C-O, you'll see the channel, which is called Pala. You will see that appear, and then you can link in to see all the various topics and videos and uh, seminars that I've done. And uh, you can subscribe there, and you'll get all the content that I'm uploading, which really is a large assortment of things. Uh, You can also find me on DeviantArt as well as on Instagram, theheruka, H-E-R-U-K-A. And you can see my various many times photography and artwork on there. You can look my name up on Amazon to find the various books I've published. And you can also go to redlotustemple.net.
0: Excellent. And with that, we'll wrap up this first hour For people that are here, thank you for coming to the Cosmic Salon. And uh, if you're interested, you want more of this, I will link how you get to it. And all of the avenues in which you may find Alan will be in the show notes. So until then, aviento. And there we are with the first half of this fantastic interaction I know it feels like we left some loose ends and the nature of this chat I had with Alan just went that way and so it all gets wrapped up in the second half and so I'm toying with just throwing that in public as well so We'll see how it goes. However, you may always find the second half at Patreon forward slash niche. And the link is in the show notes. I keep hearing that when people search for me on Patreon, they cannot find me. And sadly, they've ended up on other Patreon pages that are not mine. I'm not sure how that happens, but it, it is something to think about so with that said, I want to thank the producers of this wonderful chat. Santa Rebecca, Jason Lamson, Michael Watcher, Melanie Poe, Christy Tesmer, and Marin Kramer. Thank you so much. As well as all the other patrons that help make this possible through my Patreon the world is very, very strange. It's bigger than you know, smaller than you know. There is so much to put our minds around, so much territory to explore. And for those that do not see how mysterious it all is and feel that everything is done and over and has been done, I'm sorry. Abiento.